Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, we have a special episode on great power competition in Africa. Today's show is an excerpt from a live event we hosted on June 11th. We asked four exceptional current and former policymakers to debate the merits of great power competition. Ghana's Minister of Finance and Economic Planning, Kenneth Oriata, CEO and President of the One Campaign and former USAID Administrator, Gail Smith, former Nigerian Minister and former World Bank Vice President, Dr. Obi Zekwasili, and CSIS Senior Advisor, Financial Integrity Network Chairman, and former Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism, Juan Zarati. The point of this debate was to provoke thought and elicit new insights. Our distinguished speakers were game enough to accept debating positions that I assigned them to help us refine our thinking on strategic competition in Africa. You'll first hear Minister Foriata, followed by Dr. Zekwasili, Gail Smith, and Juan Zarati. Just a final note, today's podcast kicks off a series of episodes on Africa's foreign relations. We'll look at ties with France, the United States, China, as well as India, Japan, and the Gulf. I hope you'll join us. And now, to the debate. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Thank you very much indeed, and it's, it's really an honor to be invited um, to this panel. Uh, let me also thank CSIS uh, for his excellent work. Um, we in Ghana in 2017, uh, April, when we had just come into government, invited uh, myself and the vice president uh, for one of your panels. And it really outdoored our government and um, began to build trust and the policy credibility in what we were, we were doing and to signal that truly um, Africa was going somewhere and has been until this pandemic. Uh, but it's also uh, very difficult to be on the other side of Obi. I've never won an argument with her, so I don't know why I'm in this state. Uh, but thank you very much. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult um, to believe that um, this, this kind of power game is constructive for Africa uh, because we are all witness to 60 years of it and we have essentially been a chessboard uh, for this great power con competition and I dare say that the statistics indicate uh, that it hasn't, it hasn't helped us in any way. Um, so truly, we, I do not feel that we need a repeat of this dynamic between the US and China uh, which is raging uh, at this point. Um, uh, and so we, we need to uh, begin to look at, at um, US policy that does not look um, at economic super, superpower or blocks uh, as the way in which it informs what they do. Um, conversely, um, Africa's most critical needs uh, is what we should be looking at uh, for the US and what did the U.S. really want um, from, from Africa? Uh, there must always be a mutually beneficial convergence point um, that will also, you know, allow for great partnerships um, to be formed. Um, secondly, 
I mean, lies more continents, Africa's most critical um, needs uh, infrastructure, uh, which requires a certain uh, type of financing um, that I do not believe that the current um, global financial architecture um, uh, is, is open to or that um, lends itself uh, for us to do that. I believe the African Development Bank um, uh, believes we have about 130 to 170 billion annually um, of infrastructure need that is required. Uh, and nobody has tried to solve it, but I, I, I think there's a sustainable way um, of looking, looking at it. And then thirdly, uh, I think it leads to um, uh, sort of a, a lack of trust and, and inconsistencies in policies. Uh, if I look at the AGOA, for example, between 2002 and 2008, um, I think it's the trade between US and Africa grew to about $100 billion. Uh, let's fast forward to 2017, and the combined total value of US-African trade was just under $40 billion, $39 billion. Um, so you, you begin to see um, how we, we roll back. Um, now, how do we create a system um, that is driven uh, by mutual and long-term benefits um, for, for the continent uh, and the US? Uh, and, and this is, I think, the challenge and for policymakers and all the smart people um, who are engaged in this. How do we promote trade? How do we cascade investments? Um, for example, if we were to increase uh, world trade um, for Africa by 1%, Judd, uh, that would be about $70 billion of new income that will come to, to the continent. Uh, and that does not require charity. It requires a certain um, commitment to do that. Um, I know in Ghana, in July 2018, we signed an MOU uh, with the US uh, specifically um, to govern a framework um, for our relationship um, with the with US um, to ensure American businesses and the type of financing that is required um, could be obtained. Um, it's amazing if you look in 19, is a 60, or so where OPEC um, uh, put in about 230 million uh, to build the Akosomo um, hydroelectric power. Um, and that's uh, literally 60, 50 years ago. And it has served um, Ghana, Benin, and Togo, and really has been the anchor for the stability in this country. I mean, that amount of money may be translated into $5 billion today, uh, in current nominal terms, uh, you'd be hard pressed um, to put together um, a US OPEC um, to look at $5 billion uh, in one project in Ghana or anywhere in Africa at this time. So now we, we are faced um, with, this, with this pandemic, uh, which has just essentially thrown uh, everything off. We've been hit um, up to about 15% of our GDP. Um, country by country depending. Uh, it is quite clear that if it continues, 27 million people um, will fall into extreme poverty um, at this rate. And, and, and the 20s therefore look to potentially be a lost decade. Um, uh, the issue now is how do you find uh, liquidity 
to ensure that A, we are even able to manage um, support um, of, of paying our debts. Um, secondly, um, a health infrastructure requires another 100 billion. Uh, and B, um, looking at a recovery um, so that this does not uh, spin off into three or five years will also require another 100 billion. And the IMF obviously have worked very hard within a spate of two months. I think they've been able to deploy about 16 billion into the continent. And that is reacting um, to the exigencies of the time uh, we still are looking to the World Bank to be also as pro proactive. Um, but then we, we have certain constraints and that we have to meet. The whole debate about the SDR, which brings again the great powers uh, into, into question, um, because part of the reason that the Treasury uh, would say that, well, if you increase SDRs, um, some countries uh, which are not favored countries will also benefit from it. And so what do you do? You know, uh, and we can do much more than that. Um, so the question really for me is that uh, the current system um, is not fit for purpose. There needs to be a tectonic uh, reshaping uh, of the financial um, architecture uh, that we have now. And um, the humanity of the, of the current environment um, should be seen. Uh, this is unprecedented. We're getting into uh, a recession and potentially a depression um, that we haven't experienced before. And um, the whole issue is being normalized um, at a point where uh, we need to ask fundamental questions um, as to where we are going. I have no um, question in my mind that of over 100 trillion dollars of assets under management in the private sector, there is a solution um, to what we have to do if Africa needs a hundred billion dollars um, each year um, to support uh, our infrastructure needs. Um, so the, the question that I leave on the table is that with all of these resources, uh, with all of the minds um, that we have, what is it that is constraining um, our ability to solve this problem, apart from the issues of very parochial fights uh, between the superpowers. Um, and that is what I will leave on the table. We African finance ministers uh, have worked through um, the issue, the questions of the SDRs, um, the issue of creating a special purpose vehicle um, to accelerate our entry into the capital markets um, where we are at um, to ensure that there'll be adequate resources um, to do that. Um, and I just challenge um, those against the increase in SDRs um, to ask a fundamental question as to where Africa uh, would go if we don't all put um, our shoulders um, to, to the wheels. Um, Jad, the reality is that uh, by 2050, um, Africa would be what a quarter of the world's population have the, the, the largest um, um, youth um, that is required um, for growth and, and we need to intervene now uh, and get beyond um, the power games um, that seem to be shaping um, the direction that we are currently going. Uh, competition is good uh, but negative competition
competition that does not lead um, to the development of the continent is not what we are all looking for. There has to be a certain economics of mutuality um, that understands that the old pillars uh, of power and just um, um, commodities and resources uh, may not be the most effective way um, for, um, um, for productivity um, on, on the globe. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, excellent start. Let me turn to the other side to Dr. Ezekwesili. Let me thank uh, you, George, and your colleagues over at the CSIS for uh, the opportunity of uh, this uh, conversation. Um, as you have rightly indicated, uh, we are at your mercy in terms of uh, what side of this debate we're taking. So Ken doesn't have to worry. Uh, he might find out that um, our points will converge very much. Um, I want to start by saying that uh, one thing that we do know of competition as a, as a construct is that it is, it, it, it is meant to be positive. Uh, and that is why we, everyone decries unhealthy competition. And so to the extent that I focus this debate uh, from the perspective of a constructive framework that engages uh, U.S. African policy uh, in a way uh, in a way that enables a win-win uh, situation for the two continents. Uh, that then helps me make the very crucial point that this uh, the, the 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 current uh, situation uh, within our global uh, relations uh, demands that we will always have a race to the top a race to the top of countries, of nations. And when this happens, there will definitely always be the necessity for countries to compete in terms of uh, their uh, security issues, uh, global security issues, global norms, global values, and wanting to direct global ideologies. I think that the key and important thing is that when it comes to uh, this conversation in relation to how the U.S. perceives Africa, uh, we must uh, uh, declare uh, authoritatively that it in fact is important for the continent of Africa that U.S. should feel challenged by another continent or another country of the world. Um, so my number one point would be that our world has changed in very profound uh, way from what we used to know and uh, from what history taught us. Uh, today's uh, competition, great power competition, um, as it were, being defined as uh, uh, between the US, uh, China, and you know, with Russia standing by the side, by its side rather, um, is um, one that we would, uh, we would frame from the perspective that it does not and will not resemble what we had with previous uh, uh, global power or, or, or competitions. Uh, the reason being that in today's own context, Africa does not, um, <laughs> does not resemble the continent that it was during the Cold War uh, and the competition between, uh, 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 between US and, uh, and, and Russia. Neither does Africa uh, look like what it was when uh, the, the decline of uh, the British Empire and the ascent 
dependency of the uh, of the of the American Empire or, or the American state, uh, uh, you know, happened. And therefore, what Africa stands to gain from a competitive framework in 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 the design of U.S. Africa policy is that the U.S. will be dealing with an Africa that has come to a place of uh, uniqueness and understanding of its own needs and aspirations. And that definitely is an important uh, factor for uh, a good uh, foreign policy uh, by a nation that um, averts itself to be interested in a global uh, pro progress, not just its own progress. The US portends often that the, 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 the openness of, of economies around the world would lead to economic progress of the entire world. And that uh, driving the process of economic prosperity uh, is a key uh, and fundamental uh, objective of the US uh, policy globally. If that is the case, then anything that supports the economic progress of our continent should be a very positive uh, basis to frame uh, the African policy within the US uh, bureaucracy. The second point is that how great powers are perceived by Africans today uh, in our governance space has, uh, has clearly uh, changed uh, significantly. Uh, most Africans wouldn't uh, take the position of the uh, US or take the position of China. Most Africans would take the position of Africa. And so uh, what matters for most Africans, therefore, is that this independence of, of, of thought uh, that the, there is African interest that needs to be, uh, uh, to be framed within the construct of who gives the best and at what time is critical and crucial uh, for uh, the way that um, ultimately the US-African policy is, uh, uh, is, is constructed. The third point is that um, they, they, this matter of great power competition, uh, which uh, sort of looks at um, how two countries that have amassed uh, enough military power and economic power can then begin to compete uh, amongst themselves uh, in, in strategic areas, um, it does not, <laughs> it, 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 it helps in many ways uh, to also uh, signal that we are at a point in a global uh, development where there is a new conversation to be had. Uh, if for that new conversation to be had, we need uh, that the two powers are showing exactly what the frame of their thinking is. And so a competitive, uh, a competition-driven approach enables each of these countries to put their best foot forward. And in putting their best foot forward, Africa's interest is better served. Um, the uh, fourth point that I'd like to make is um, that for 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 the for this kind of competition, uh, the the issues of multilateralism and uh, and and cooperation and collaboration versus conflict uh, will necessarily come to the table. And since we are, uh, we we have seen over the last. Um, almost uh, a decade, almost a decade and a half now, a rising tide of 
um, uh, of protectionism, of nationalism, uh, and of anti-globalism, it is important that uh, this construction of of, of, of a U.S. African policy are based, you know, being driven, being being taking a competitive uh, uh, lens uh, is 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 crucial because the U.S. will come to the understanding that the unipolar um, world in which it dominated is no longer a basis for engagement. That kind of globalization is not the globalization that the rest of the world wants. And because it is not, it means that there are many issues that would come under negotiation. For example, uh, I know that most Africans running open economies uh, and being driven by uh, you know, capitalist uh, uh, philosophies in the management of economies look at the U.S., and they look at countries uh, that have been uh, that have run purely capitalist models of development and have seen that capitalism is in fact broken. And because capitalism is broken, even though it has generated the best economic output and outcome and impact for the for the entire world, um, there is that necessity for a conversation around it and so in the in the in the in the in the uh, in the in the designing of a new us african policy it would be important that that policy frames this understanding of capitalism that has come under 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 scrutiny and is losing its legitimacy but which is still important as a frame as a framework for managing economic activities for uh, optimum outcome. And then uh, when you look at uh, the, 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 the historical ties that the US has had with Africa, it, is it not uh, really a shame that uh, we come to a place where the US at all feels threatened uh, about the presence of another country uh, on the continent of Africa? It is a failure of past foreign policies toward Africa or past policies toward Africa that leads the US to feel threatened by Africa's engagement with any other country. And that's because the US missed the plot. And what I want to clearly state is that for the US and Africa, the ties go as far as the 17th century when the first set of captives arrived in the United States. Why is it that in the year 2020, we are having to talk about Black Lives Matter. The best foreign policy toward Africa now for the US has to be domestic policy of completely integrating the African Americans in the United States, being a subset of what Africa represents into the best of policies that show that equity and equality regardless of differences in race, in language, in beliefs, are crucial and fundamental to uh, the American way that it tries to sell to the rest of the world. And, and so Black Lives Matter is really an indication that the best foreign policy is the right domestic policy. So the right domestic policy that Africa would look to the US to see would be what it does with 
our brothers and sisters on its continent. And then when you think of how um, the U.S. must bring something to the table, if when you discuss uh, the matter of uh, foreign policy toward Africa uh, from a competitive lens vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, China and Russia, then what we draw from that is that the U.S. must bring something to the table. What must it bring to the table? It must bring something different from its previous way of perceiving the continent. Africa is a business case. Africa is not a humanitarian case. That is an important framing that will emerge in a competitive framework uh, uh, that, that, that looks at the presence of other countries on the continent of Africa. The, the key point in, 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 in this matter of Africa being a business case is that when you look at uh, the, the continent's population and you look at the continent's regional uh, uh, ambition, uh, regionalization ambition, and you know that uh, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement would necessarily lead to more than uh, three and a half trillion of, 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 of increase in, in, in trade activities and, in, and the kind of GDP and spillovers that come from it, then Africa cannot possibly be considered a humanitarian case by the U.S. The U.S. needs to begin to think of Africa in an entirely different way. And the only way that this happens is to see that while it is busy perceiving Africa as a humanitarian ground, another country perceives Africa as a business case. So this makes a very important point for us uh, to, uh, to, to push this, this matter of change. And then the, 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 I think my final point is that in today's world, we need leadership for the production of the critical global public goods that are necessary for a stable, prosperous world. And the production of global public goods uh, can be something that's difficult for the more vulnerable economies uh, on the continent of Africa and elsewhere. The US leadership of global public goods has really not been, um, has not been, um, has not been, um, I, you know, sometimes my English fails me. I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to characterize. It, it hasn't been, it hasn't been worthy. It has been less than, than, than worthy. It has not been as noble as it should be. The global public goods, whether it has to do with the environment or it has to do with health, it has to do with property, you know, the, the, the issue of peace and security, there is a role that the leading economy of the world must constantly pay, play in building the collective power and effort toward these cross-border public goods. And for us to be able to, 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 to get that level of, um, level of um, effectiveness in having the right sets of global public goods that Africa and Africans need in order to be the best that they can be and contribute their optimal to our global world, um, the U.S. needs to feel a sense of competition. And that competition would willy-nilly drive the U.S. to build the kind of coalition that is necessary in order for it to, uh, uh, to retain that sense that it is indeed a leading uh, country uh, in the world. Um, 
let me end on the note that for for sub-Saharan Africa, I think that the, 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 the way that the U.S. shapes its policy going forward will determine how well the U.S. does in the 21st century. Africa will determine how well the U.S. itself does and by the end of the 21st century. Uh, the continent right now is, uh, is, is, is estimated to be the only continent which by 2035 would still have the largest concentration of poor people. Thank you, uh, Dr. Zekwasili. And now we'll turn to Gail. Gail, uh, both the Honorable Minister and Dr. Zekwasili has put a lot on the table, um, but let me turn back to you to argue that perhaps it is not a constructive framework. Look, I, I would say that this question of the, the superpower rivalries, the framework begs the question about whether U.S.-Africa policy is indeed about Africa and the United States or whether it's about China and the United States. And I think it's a mistake to make it about China and the United States because we actually need an Africa policy <clears throat> for some of the reasons that have been pointed to. <clears throat> it's the largest untapped market in the world and with the continental free trade area coming into force, there's huge opportunity to indeed make a business case. It's the world's leading contributor on peacekeeping. It's been a reliable partner in the UN Security Council. Uh, I think it's foolish in the extreme not to have an actual policy towards Africa. Uh, as opposed to one that is shaped uh, and, in fact, somehow a derivative of our policy towards China. But I think there, there are a few more reasons I would point to. Um, first, I think it's built on a couple false premises, or I don't know, premi. Uh, the first is that Africa should or has any interest in making a choice. Uh, there was a policy, a sort of clear choice doctrine announced in 2018 by the administration which posited that you can choose what kind of investment you want. Do you want us or basically do you want the Chinese? Now, I've been involved in Africa policy for a long time. It's been my consistent experience that there is a terrific desire to see increased private capital flows from the United States. Uh, I have not experienced that there's been a desire to say and none other, um, simply because you can't afford to do that. If you need to build a road from point A to point B, put on the infrastructure that will enable the realization of the CFTA, you've got to have investment from multiple sources. So the notion that it's in Africa's interest to make a choice, I think, is faulty. The second is that it appears to be somewhat driven by this notion that economic competition is an all or nothing proposition. Uh, I don't believe that to be true. I can refer to the levels of U.S. investment in Africa. They are still remarkably low. But I don't know a country of a country in Africa that would not welcome increased investment. It's, I don't think there's any evidence that China has somehow crowded out the space for increased competition. So, in fact, there is room uh, for multiple countries to have engagement with the continent. Um, the third issue I would raise is, is it really very effective? And I think the answer to that is a resounding no. Um, if you look at U.S. investment in Africa, it is far lower than it should be, but it's dropped from a peak in 2014 to just over $47 billion in 2018. That should be one of the indicators, uh, one would think, if a framework was competition with China. Um, and I think, again, the, the impact in terms of our own interests, I think, uh, 
has been less than less than effective. Finally, and perhaps most important for me, I think are the lost opportunity costs. Uh, we are facing a global pandemic. Uh, many have said that for people in Africa, people may die of hunger before they die of the virus. The impact on economic stability has been dramatic. The impact on health, not just the virus itself, but across health systems, the impact on food security. Uh, the U.S. and China worked together during the Ebola epidemic. Um, the U.S. and China worked together to support the AU in the creation of the African CDC, and look what that institution is doing today. Um, this is surely a case on the immediate response side where it is in our interest in getting control of what is a global pandemic globally, uh, but also in terms of the future of Africa to be cooperating with everyone we can cooperate with. And I would wager that to Ken's point on the economic impact and whether it's the debt standstill utilization of SDRs, the SPV proposal, uh, the chances of Africa securing what is really a very sound proposal for a continent that has been hit extremely hard, as our own country has been, um, <clears throat> their ability to secure that agreement is made more difficult by the fragmentation which is driven in large measure by rivalry between the U.S. and China. None of that suggests that, that we should endorse China's policy, its investment policy, the opaqueness of its investment, the lack of transparency on debt. Those are all issues. Uh, but I think we've learned, I hope we've learned, that we've got a lot less influence on those issues when we stand and scream at them as opposed to when we actually either engage or offer an alternative that can yield real results. So I would say it's generally not a good idea or terribly effective. Over. Thank you, Gail. Uh, Juan, uh, we're going to have you uh, conclude uh, the, the debate portion. And uh, let me just hand it over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Judd. I, I want to thank you and the team at CSIS for inviting me and, and giving me the opportunity to ride the intellectual wake of my panelists. Uh, really honored to be on uh, with everybody. My only fear here is to uh, disappoint Dr. Zekuzeli uh, being on her side. I hope I don't disappoint her with the, the arguments. Uh, but let me, let me start with the suggestion first that I think we're in heated agreement as to where we ultimately want to be, which is a, a U.S. policy that is constructive, that's focused on Africa, that is forward-looking, and that meets the ambitions of what uh, U.S. national security strategies and policies have articulated and the good work that uh, Gail Smith and others have done at AID and other parts of, of government and in the private sector for some time. So I think we're in heated agreement as to where we wanna be, uh, but I think there's a question as to what we think great power competition allows for or can provide. And I think the first question really is, what do we mean by that competition? I think in the first instance, it need not be a, a, a reversion to the past or past model, that is to say, this need not be a sense that competition means conflict, uh, that, that competition means a battle between proxies, be they uh, in a hot war context or in an economic or cultural context. Uh, it need not be zero sum, and it need not uh, require a sense of dependencies, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, what, what we see with the development of Africa, uh, and as Obi mentioned earlier, Africa is very different today than it was 30 years ago. Uh, there are major opportunities for Africa 
to not only uh, drive forward, but to be demandors of what the international community does with and through uh, African commerce and engagement. And so the first thing I think we have to do is, is ask ourselves what that competition even means, whether it's US-Chinese competition, US-Russian competition, US-EU competition, all of that plays into this question. Uh, from my perspective, Judd, I think there are really three key issues, and, and this, I think, echoes what uh, Obi was saying earlier. <clears throat> I think in the first instance, from my perspective, great power competition uh, sharpens the mind of U.S. policymakers. Um, absent uh, a sense of urgency or competition, um, U.S.-Africa policy will fall to the lower rungs of urgency or prioritization. Uh, given where other U.S. interests lie or sense of threat or risk lies. Uh, we've, we've seen this in the past with U.S. administration after administration calling for pivots to different parts of the world, but constantly drawn back to uh, crises in the Middle East or uh, transatlantic relationships in the first instance. So in the, in the first order here, I think that the question of where is U.S. attention likely to lie? And I think if Africa and African policy is put into the frame of great power competition, especially with respect to China, you're likely to get more attention uh, and more uh, prioritization within US policy circles. I think you've seen that in recent days uh, with the sense of threat and competition from China on the health security side, the, the sense that mask diplomacy is challenging uh, US primacy on health security in Africa has been a major challenge. And you've even heard Secretary Pompeo, Secretary of State, talk about the U.S. not being um, outgunned or, or outmatched in terms of its aid to, to Africa and its work in Africa. We'll have to see if that plays out. But the reality is that the competition from China is forcing that very question within U.S. policy circles. A second key issue, Judd, is that um, with the competition that we are talking about, which isn't just a territorial competition, isn't a military competition, but is a broad economic uh, competition from the likes of China, you have the possibility of a, a broader uh, set of policy engagements beyond just threat, risk, or um, other uh, vulnerabilities that have tended to define what US-Africa policy has prioritized. Um, this, again, gives the opportunity for U.S. policy to begin to match the hope and promise of what the continent uh, represents, the demographic boom, uh, the innovation that's happening in different pockets of African uh, countries and economies. Um, and so the breadth of, of challenge from China, from an economic perspective, allows Africa then to become a demandeur of what not just China, Russia, and the U.S. Uh, uh, do in Africa, but what other countries can do. Um, this also plays out in, in obviously the, the trade context, but even in the cultural context, where the U.S. has to begin to worry about the, the perception of American values. Obi mentioned this uh, directly in the context of domestic issues in the United States. The U.S. has to then focus much more directly on the perception of the United States, its cultural values, its moral values, its principles out into Africa as a result of this competition. Absent that competition, the U.S. would be less attendant to those types of questions. Um, and finally, I, and I think perhaps most importantly, and this goes to the minister's uh, very good points about the need for uh, more creative reform and thinking in the financial domain, um, 
I think competition brings creativity. I think the challenge with US Africa policy is that it has tended to be much more static. It's been captured by particular modalities, authorities, um, even traditions as to how that policy plays out. Um, and with competition comes the, the necessity of greater creativity, creativity with how we think about partnerships, what those partnerships look like, not just state to state, but with non-state actors, the private sector NGOs. Um, it requires us to think not about dependencies, but about proactive partnerships for uh, creative purposes. Um, and it forces us to think about different domains. Um, when the US looks at where Chinese loans are going and what those investments look like in the transport sector, the power sector, the mining sector, communication sector, the US now has to begin to think about how to compete competitively, uh, creatively in those domains and, and what tools can be brought to bear, what partnerships can be brought to bear, perhaps in ways that aren't as, um, as traditional or part of the foreign policy orthodoxy. Um, this has to do as well with thinking about new payment systems, new financial systems, as the minister mentioned, uh, the development of new technologies. I think we've seen this with the question of 5G technologies around the world, where the US has had to be much more aggressive and creative about thinking about alternatives to, to Chinese-based uh, Huawei systems around the world. Absent that competition, the US would not be involved in, the, in that kind of debate. Um, and finally, I think, as, as Obi mentioned, there's a challenge of international standards that China represents, the competition around what the future of the use of data and surveillance tools, um, what anti-corruption standards look like, what bioethics standards should look like, what uh, uh, constructive um, capitalism looks like for and respect uh, for the environment and environmental rules. All of these are standards that are being challenged uh, globally, but are playing out obviously in the African context. And I think the, the fact that the U.S. has to compete to define those standards with partners on the ground gives Africa an opportunity to shape those standards, not just in an African context, but on a global stage. That, again, is an opportunity for some creativity uh, and for African countries and African communities to be demandors of the United States uh, and not just ponds in some broader global competition. So at the end of the day, I think global competition, whether it's with China or, or others, forces the United States to, to be more focused on Africa and its policy, forces it to, to broaden the scope of its policies, and it forces it to be much more creative as to how it engages uh, with its African partners. At the end of the day, I think that competition will be important for the US and Africa. Great. Thank you so much, Juan. We're going to do a lightning round of questions. Question one was, U.S. interests will be more focused on Africa and its developments if the arena is seen as a competitive space for influence. A strong 85% uh, agreed with that statement. Second, we need a tectonic shift in the global architecture, about 75%. Number three, a great power competition framework forces the opening of wider and broader policy apertures, a little less 65 for that statement. There is no strong support from Africans for another superpower rivalry being waged on the continent, almost 85%. It's a really strong response. 
Great power competition framework will force the United States into a more creative engagement with Africa, about 65%. And the inclusion of countering China in US-Africa policy has no discernible impact. That was a 60% disagree with that statement. In withdrawing from the world WHO and focusing on policy differences with China, the US has hindered efforts to forge a global response, 80%. The competition of the 21st century is entirely different model than it was before, it's about 75%. And finally, the question of the debate, Great power competition is a constructive framework for formulating U.S. policies in sub-Saharan Africa. 60% said agree and 40% said disagree, which I think is probably a stronger vote than we had um, when we did this back in November. Thank all our distinguished panels, the great experience, and I hope we've added to people's thinking about what our policy should look like. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.